0: I wanna just take a minute and uh, pray and dedicate this time to God and ask him to prepare our hearts. So let's pray together. God, we just wanna say thank you that your word is so good and so true and so faithful. We wanna thank you that you haven't left us alone to try to figure things out but you've given us your word and your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that you would open our hearts today to the things you want to say to each one of us individually. Your word says that it is living and active and that it it divides deep into our hearts. And we pray, God, that you would do that for us today. We pray that you would help us to keep our hearts and our, and our ears and our minds open to what you might share with us today and that it would translate into changed lives. So we dedicate this time to you. We ask you to meet us in your word, but don't leave us the same as you found us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever known somebody who, um, who says that they value certain things, but then when you watch how they live their lives, you think, I don't think they really value those things? right? Have you ever been a person like that? Okay, good, because I, I have to say I've been a person like that, and, and we have to sort of watch ourselves that way. You know, the, the guy who says, I really uh, value physical fitness, and he tells you that while he's sitting on his couch eating a bag of Funyuns, right? Or the person that says, you know, I really, really value family above everything, and yet they're constantly away from their family, they're always on the road, their hobbies take precedence over the needs of their family, and you just kind of shake your head. The truth is, that our values are supposed to translate into our priorities, right? They're supposed to work themselves out into our lives. And especially as Christians, it's very easy for us to go, hey, there are certain values that I hold that are from the word of God, but then I sort of live my life in whatever way seems easiest to me at that time. And those values don't always get fleshed out in the way that I live. And I think God's going to kind of smack us in the side of the head a little bit today with his word, because uh, the Sermon on the Mount deals with the things that God values, tells us the things that we should value, but then goes all the way further than that to say, and since you value these things, live differently. And that's kind of what we're going to see today as Jesus continues this famous sermon. Um, And one of the things I love about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus tells you what we should value, and then he tells you what we should prioritize. Uh, Take the the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes we covered for a couple of weeks, uh, the, the part where he says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, in other words, he's saying, hey, do you value the blessing of God? Do you want to live a life that is blessed by God? He goes, okay, it's very simple. Be poor in spirit. Mourn over your own sin, Um, hunger and thirst for righteousness, be gentle, be merciful, be pure in heart. Those are the things that reflect the value of being blessed by God. Those are the things that lead to a life that is blessed by God. And and so he doesn't pull any punches. He dives right in and starts talking to us about those things. One of the things that um, we learn throughout the whole Bible is that God values people. Very, very highly. So much so that he prioritizes his relationship with us. He prioritizes. Um, our relationship with him, so much so that he sends his son to die on a cross when that relationship is broken by our sin. And he's like, I'm going to pay this ultimate price to bring you back into relationship with me. Now, make no mistake, the scripture is very clear that apart from God, we are broken. Apart from God, we are unable to save ourselves. Apart from God, the scripture even says, there is none who does good apart from God. And yet, every one of us made in the image of God. Every one of us with the thumbprint of God on our lives. Every one of us loved by God. And so because of that, he prioritizes his relationship with us, even to the point of Jesus dying on the cross. And the Sermon on the Mount teaches us to value what God values and to prioritize what God prioritizes and a huge percentage of the New Testament deals with telling us how to relate to God and how to relate to other people. But it's not just the New Testament, the Old Testament, all the way back. You can read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You're going to find this value of God, relationships with people, keeps coming through and coming through and coming through. In fact, If you go just to the sort of the heart of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure all of you know by heart, and if I called on somebody randomly and said, tell me commandment number seven, I'm sure you would all get it right, so I'm not going to worry about that. The Ten Commandments, though, the first four of those commandments deal directly with our relationship to God, and the last six deal with our relationships to each other. It's all about relationships, and so he gives us how to relate to God in the first four commandments, how to relate to each other in the in the last six. And as we saw last week, when Jesus was asked to sum up the greatest of the commandments, he, he said, love God and love people. And, and you'll remember, he was asked for the single commandment, the single greatest commandment, and he gave two. Love, Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And you go, well, they only asked for one, and now he's given them two. The reason is because those two are so intertwined that they cannot be separated. If you love God, you're going to love people. And the only way you're gonna really truly love people in a way that is unselfish is if you love God and you let him do it through you, right? So, so those two things can't be separated. Relationships reflect God's values. So relationships are a huge priority to God. Do you see the connection I keep making? Your values lead to your priorities. Your values lead to your priorities. Your values lead to your priorities. So we can lie to ourselves, and we can lie to other people, and we can say, oh, I value all these wonderful things, but if my life is prioritized around different values, you actually live out the things you truly value. And so you might be kidding yourself about what you really value when you look at your life. As early as the fifth century, I'm I'm a big uh, church history guy, something really interesting happened. The first four centuries after Christ gave his life, you have um, the church just exploding, particularly in the Roman Empire. The church is just growing. People are coming to Christ by the tens of thousands, more and more people all the time, all the while the church is being persecuted. People are being put to death for their faith. People are being martyred. People are. There's laws passed against Christianity because the Roman Empire sees the church as a threat to Rome. And so along comes Constantine and uh, you can read about it in your history books. Through a series of issues, Constantine, the emperor of Rome says, uh, we're gonna make Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And as soon as the government takes over the church, the church peters out. And by the way, that, that happens everywhere. And that has happened all throughout history. So what we end up having is from the 400s AD all the way into 1500 AD, we have what is called the Dark Ages. Now, now there's still a an organization called the church, but it's no longer this spirit-filled, world-changing thing. Instead, uh, it's dominated by like politicians who were given bishoprics and popes who don't even necessarily believe the Bible and, and the government controlling the church and, and uh, th- uh, crusades and all of that kind of stuff happening during these dark ages. But rest assured... Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So even in the darkest of times when the church is at its weakest, that's when there's always a remnant There's always a group of people who still love God, who are still striving to serve God and honor God and worship God. And so within that season of the church, you have in in the fifth century, this movement that begins among people who have a definite heart to truly worship God. Uh, It's called the monastic movement. And in the monastic movement, basically what you have is a bunch of people, mostly mostly monks and, and nuns who are saying, I really love God, I really wanna honor God, I really wanna worship God, but I keep sinning. And the reason I keep sinning is because I'm around all these people. Because, you know, I lust after that person and, and I'm angry with this person and I'm jealous of that person, and et cetera, et cetera. It's the people that are causing me to sin. So what I've gotta do is get away from the people. The basic idea is this Christianity thing is great except for the people. (laughs) You laugh, but to be honest, have you never felt that way? I felt that way a couple times. So it's like the teacher who says, teaching is the greatest profession except for the kids. You know? I, 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 I have heard pastors say to me, you know, I love the ministry if it wasn't for the people. And I, and I think to myself, um, I don't know if you've ever read your Bible, but the people are the church. You can't love the church and not the people, right? The people are the church, And we gotta love people because God created us for these relationships. And and yet in the monastic movement, there are these people who are saying, the people are getting in my way. It's other people that are causing me to sin. So I'm gonna go to the wilderness. I'm gonna move away. I'm gonna live like a hermit in the wilderness with no other people. And then nobody will be tempting me to sin. But guess what? Every single one of them learned. The temptation and the sin came with them. Why? Why? Because as we said last week, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's the whole point that he's making in the Sermon on the Mount. It is impossible to live a God-honoring Christian life apart from other people. We were created for community, and so we can't do it by ourselves. And they learned that in the monastic movement. You have these writings in the late part of the monastic movement of these monks who were talking about how their sin went with them wherever they went, and being away from people did not help. God created us for relationships. He created us for a relationship with him, which we can call a vertical relationship. And he created us for a horizontal relationship with one another. And we can't do life any other way. And I don't care how introverted you are. And I don't care how much other people bug you. The Bible says we were created to interweave our lives with one another, to be interdependent. And if we won't do that, we will not experience Christ to the fullest. It's part of what it is to be a Christian. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't tell us to get away from the other people. He tells us how to honor God even though we're constantly dealing with less than perfect other people. And so last week we saw uh, Matthew 5, verses 20 and 21, that we're not allowed to murder these other people. Well, that's what a shocking statement. Hey, maybe don't murder people. Okay, that seems pretty simple, unless you're some sort of a psychopath, and I truly hope you're not, that you're not thinking, oh man, I just want to go murder a bunch of people. Now, I'm not saying there's not some times when you've seen some people and said, man, I just want to, but I'm talking about, it's pretty clear, it's not this overwhelming thing when Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And everybody is nodding and everybody's saying amen. Why? Because they're probably not murderers and they're fine with it. But then he takes it another step, doesn't he? He goes, Not only should you not murder, but hey, how about you don't hate other people either? And that raises a very um, fair question. If we're not supposed to murder and we're not even supposed to hate, How are we supposed to deal with relationships with people who hurt us and people who harm us and people who break our hearts? What are we supposed to do about that? And that's where Jesus gets incredibly practical in the Sermon on the Mount. Go with me to Matthew chapter five and we're gonna pick it up in verse 23. Matthew 5, 23. Let's read verse 23 through 26. Jesus speaking here says, therefore, If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, let's stop there. What's he saying? He's saying if you're coming to worship God and as you come to worship God, it occurs to you that you've got this broken relationship. There is somebody who's got something against you and you are reminded of that. What are we supposed to do? Here's what he says, verse 24. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent uh, may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid the last sent. So Jesus took the commandment not to murder and he takes it one step further. <clears throat> so we say, "Okay, um I won't kill him, but I sure do hate him." And Jesus goes, "No." We say, "Okay, I'm going to try not to hate him, but I'm never speaking to that guy again." And now he's taking that command one step further by telling us that we are actually required to take positive steps toward reconciling with that person. When a relationship is fractured, he's calling us to do something about bringing healing to that relationship. It is up to us as followers of Jesus to make that relationship right. And this applies especially to relationships with other Christians. Jesus is using the term brother. If you, if you go to the altar, you come to worship, and there you realize that your brother has something against you, and he uses that term brother again and again, and he's talking about <clears throat> other brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about the church, and he's saying if there's this fracturing of relationships in the church, there is a fracturing of the church, and so we have to address those things. We have to deal with them. And it's up to us as followers of Jesus to do that. This is not talking about some stranger and you have to like everybody and spend time with everybody and get along with everybody. And and it's not talking about some distant person that you have some acquaintance with or somebody that was in your past a long time ago and is no longer in relationship to you. He's talking really about the people that are supposed to be in your inner circle, your support system, the church. And he's saying that we need to make things right with one another, So this is about more than me and that other person. This is actually about me and God. And remember how I said that you can't separate the commands of God to love God and to love people? Well, here Jesus is telling us that if we have broken relationships with another person, it gets in the way of our relationship with God. I I hope you heard that. Because a lot of us are like, no, forget these people. I just want to have a good relationship with God. He says, I'm not going to accept your worship when you come to the altar and your brother has something against you and you won't deal with it. So he says, don't even make your offering, leave. Go make it right with your brother and then come back. Now, we're just starting to get to the part of the sermon where you're going to start really frowning at me quite a bit. And that's why we prayed when we started. I think God wants to do something in our hearts here. Because you know what? It's a rare person who does not have some bitterness in their heart towards somebody who who is... Unwilling to forgive, who's unwilling to own up to what they've done to break the relationship. So I'm assuming that for many of us here, as we go deeper into this passage, God's going to bring some names to our minds. And that's why I said we have to go beyond just going, I value the word of God. We have to prioritize living it out. And that's not easy. We have to do it together. But here's the thing. If I'm unwilling to deal with broken relationships with people, it gets in the way of my relationship with God. Remember what Jesus said, John 13, 35, famous quote Jesus says, They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's that's our witness. That's how the world out there goes, hey, the gospel is true. They see us loving one another with all of our differences, with with all of the things that normally separate and divide people. My goodness, in your lifetime, have you ever seen our society as divided as it is today? Just divided on racial lines, divided on political lines, divided on financial lines, divided on age lines, like everybody's got their little camp that they live in and the people in their camp are fine, but all those other camps are the bad guys. It's so divisive. We live in a time that is incredibly divisive. And Jesus goes, Hey, you know what? In a divisive time like that, if they can look at the church and go, what is it with these people? They all love each other. I mean, the black people love the white people. And the old people love the young people and, the, and the, the people who are immigrants love the ones who were born here and, and, and they come from different backgrounds and they, have, they voted for different presidential candidates. <gasps> <laughs> and they still love each other. Guys, that shines to a world. And we talked earlier about how we together are supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be the shining message, right? We're supposed to be the light that is set on a lampstand so that everybody can see it. That happens when we love one another, and when we neglect to do that, that light just dims. So it affects my relationship with God, and it affects our witness, But I think maybe the worst thing is that my relationship with God is hindered because of my broken relationship with others. Again, verse 23, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come and present. Your offering. God's not saying I don't welcome your worship. He's not saying I don't want us to have this kind of intimacy. He's saying there is something that is getting in the way. You are holding iniquity in your heart and it is keeping you from connecting to a God who will not have fellowship with iniquity. In fact, he tells us to make things right with our brother even before we come make things right with him. God says not to even bother with with your, your financial offerings. Don't even bother with your songs of praise. Don't even bother with your, with your volunteering to minister. Don't even bother with all the things that we do to honor and worship and glorify him. He says you can keep all of that if you're not willing to go and make things right with your brothers and sisters. This is hard to hear. And by the way, This is not aimed at someone who is holding a a grudge against someone else. He's saying, if you are aware that someone else is holding a grudge against you, that's when you're supposed to make it your priority to go make that right. He doesn't even qualify it by saying, if that person's gripe against you is legitimate, because if you're like me, you're going to let yourself off the hook every time and go, well, that guy's being ridiculous. There's there's absolutely no reason for him to be upset at me. This is not a legitimate point that he has. And therefore, if he just wants to be a jerk, let him be a jerk. There's nothing I can do about it. He doesn't qualify it that way. He goes, "Hey, if there's somebody who has something against you, go make it right before you even come worship God." That's how important it is to God. We're supposed to seek reconciliation whether we are the offended party or whether we are the offending party or whether someone just thinks we're the offending party. It is so easy to just go, listen, I, I can't be responsible for every jerk in the world. If that guy doesn't want to be a jerk, then so be it. But Jesus says that's not enough. We need to humble ourselves enough to try to make things right, no matter who we think is at fault. And before I, I let you get away from this thought, remember, we as Christians, if you're a Christian, You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says that Jesus looked upon a world that was in complete rebellion against him and humbled himself to become a man so that he could be hanged on a cross so that he could buy us back and we could have that relationship with God. Jesus was not at fault. We were at fault but he humbles himself and he says, hey, be like that. Remember, bad relationships with people and especially the people of God stand in the way of a good relationship with God. And you might think you can ignore that broken relationship and focus on your own relationship with God, but he goes, listen, don't even bring me the offering. And, and, and there's a temptation here, especially if the bitterness is deep in your heart, to go, All right, I guess that means I just won't bring any more offerings to God. I guess that means I just won't worship God. If he doesn't want me to worship him unless I deal with this issue, I guess I won't worship God. And and that is a perfect sign that the bitterness is a serious problem. He wants you to worship him and you desperately need to worship him. So if it's getting in the way of your worship, it's getting in the way of everything. And Psalm 66 says it very plainly. It says that if we hold wickedness in our hearts, then God will not even listen to our prayers. Does that blow your mind? That, that, that God who loves us so much goes, I, I see you there kneeling, I, I hear what you're saying, but uh, you know it sounds like uh, Charlie Brown's teacher to me. Right? And... And God says, "I will not listen to your prayer because you're holding wickedness, iniquity, shame, sin, bitterness in your heart. You can't worship God while you're actively disobeying Him. You can't worship God when you won't have regard for another person. And the peace of and the, and the peace of our relationships with one another is of great." great importance. The Bible addresses it over and over and over again. First Thessalonians 5.13 says, live in peace with one another. That's about as straightforward as it can come. I want to read you a couple of passages. One is in Hebrews chapter 12. Take your Bibles and join me in the book of Hebrews, which is all the way toward the back of your Bible. If you get to James or First Peter, you went too far, but go to Hebrews chapter 12 and join me. Hebrews 12 verse 14. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men. I love the word pursue. He's not just saying accept peace with all men, he's not saying be open to peace. He's saying you need to chase people down to get the peace. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit his blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought it with tears. We are to pursue peace with one another even to the point that we will not allow bitterness to take root in our heart. Do not miss that he calls bitterness a root. What is bitterness? Bitterness is is what happens when we allow hurt and anger to fester, right? A splinter is one thing. It hurts, no fun at all. But if you don't deal with it, what happens? Infection. And when infection sets in, there's real trouble. There's real pain. There are people who have had to have limbs removed because they did not deal with the splinter in the first place. It becomes an infection. The same thing is true on an emotional level. When we will not deal with pain, when we will not deal with our hurt, when we will not deal with the fact that someone has hurt us and we will not offer forgiveness, that anger, that hurt, that disillusionment becomes bitter bitterness and he calls bitterness a root which means roots bear fruits right eventually roots pop up they're below the surface you can't see them oh no big deal until they pop up and when they pop up they bear all kinds of horrific fruit in our lives and people who are bitter suffer immensely literally physically suffer migraine headaches and hypertension and sore muscles and all this kind of stuff that traces right back to nothing but bitterness in our hearts right? And not only that, but our relationships get broken because we become cynical, we become angry, we strike out at people, we become unloving. Bitterness bears fruit. And he says, so don't let it take root in your heart. And you go, but wait a second, I have every right to be bitter. Well, congratulations. You can be absolutely miserable if that's your choice. I, it's so funny, just this morning, um, having already finished, prepared my sermon, I ran across online a quote from Corey Ten Boom, and I, I'm gonna have to paraphrase it because I didn't write it down, but but basically what she said is that when you forgive, you set a prisoner free only to discover that the prisoner was you. That's, that's the battle against bitterness. And the scripture tells us again and again to fight bitterness tooth and nail, because it ruins lives. And then Jesus more fully illustrates this back in Matthew 5. Go back to Matthew 5 with me, and let's read the, the last two verses in our passage today, verses 25 and 26. And by the way, these verses seem a little out of place. They're very strange. Jesus has been talking, and everything he says follows. And then all of a sudden, he has these two verses where he goes off and talks about a lawsuit and a judge and being thrown in jail. Like, what in the world is he talking about? It's an illustration. Let's look at it. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're on the way with him so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid the last cent. You see the point of the illustration? We are all on our way to see the one and only judge. We're on that journey now. Every one of us is on a journey that will one day bring us to the judge of our hearts. We will all stand before him one day. Even those of us who are washed in the blood of Christ and our sins have been uh, dealt with and we have righteousness before God, the scripture says we too will stand before the righteous judge and give an account for the way we lived. You say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. But it sounds scary to me. We're gonna stand before a judge who knows our hearts. And and so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, look, you're all on your way to see the judge. How about if you settle your dispute now so that when you come to the judge, you're not guilty before him? It's the same thing he just said. Don't come to to the king of kings and lord of lords to make your offering until you go make things right with the person that you have a broken relationship with. Now, I want to take a second here um, because this, th- all of this leads to a lot of questions. So, some of us are dealing with like decades of scar tissue from someone who hurt us a long time ago. Some of the people who have hurt us the most are dead now. Some of the people we have done wrong or out of our lives and out of our reach and maybe not even alive anymore. So are we stuck? What do we do? Is he saying that every person we've ever had trouble with, we need to go become best friends with? No, that's called stupidity. Right? The truth is, we should not trust people who have proven themselves to be untrustworthy. But that does not mean that we hold iniquity in our hearts. It doesn't mean that we let the root of bitterness take root in our hearts. We still have the option to forgive. Well, what if he never apologizes? His apology has nothing to do with my forgiveness. My forgiveness is my choice. I can say I have a right to be angry and I can live in that cage. The key is called forgiveness and it leads me to freedom. We can say, well, this was a long time ago. Okay, maybe I did something wrong, but it was a long time ago and there's nothing I can do about it now. There is something you could do about it now. In as much as it depends on you, you can go and be at peace with all men. See, um, in Romans 12, let's go back to Romans 12. I want you to see this. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, Paul talks about this. Let me just spend some time in Romans 12 for a minute. Romans 12, verse 14, because we have this problem. What if the person doesn't want to reconcile? What if I can't make it right? What if that's not a healthy relationship for me to even be back in? What if, what if, what if? Here's what it says. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And here's the verse I want you to highlight, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Inasmuch as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If it is possible, be at peace with all men. Some men will not be at peace with you, some people are not willing to be at peace with you. Some people are not willing to even sit down and have a conversation. Some people continue attacking and trying to hurt you. He is saying, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That is to say, God is not holding us accountable for what others do. He's holding us accountable for our choices. Whether the values of scripture are lived out in our lives. I can't control the person who will not meet with me, will not talk to me, will not stop hating me, etc., etc. I can only control myself. But he says, if there's irreconcilable differences between you and somebody else, let it not be your unwillingness to reconcile that brings that about. So we're on our way to see this judge. And you guys, tomorrow is not promised. I, that, that statement has been on my heart so much the last couple of weeks. Um, one of my dearest friends suddenly passed away. Many of you know her. We had her memorial service yesterday. It was a beautiful thing. Um, She was absolutely, perfectly healthy until an aneurysm burst in her brain and none of us ever got to hear from her again. Tomorrow is not promised. But we live like it is. Because I don't want to, make this right. I don't want to turn from my sin. I'll get around to it, but not till later. Guys, the old saying is true. The great theologian, Bob Dylan, (laughs) said these words, someday never comes. We can live for someday, but we're not promised tomorrow. So there's no putting this off We have to do whatever we can to be at peace with our brothers. Our worship depends upon it. Our witness to a lost world depends upon it. Our very relationships with God depend upon it. And this is one of those sermons that is very simple to apply. Simple is not the same as easy. It's very simple to know what the application is, very difficult to actually walk in that application. But remember, this is not God telling you to let someone off the hook. This is God saying, I'm trying to let you off the hook. I'm trying to restore your joy. I'm trying to restore your peace. I'm trying to make this right. And, and so we, we all need to search our hearts, every one of us. And, and my guess is that almost every one of us, if not every one of us, needs to act on this. And honestly, you guys, I just want to preach sermons where everybody's happy and there's dancing unicorns. And we talk about heaven and everybody smiles and all the jokes are funny. That's what I want. But the word of God wants to change our lives. And he's saying, you got to get it into your heart and out through your life. You have to apply it and, and if there is animosity between us and a brother or sister, we are responsible to make it right. Now, before, before you go, here it says that if you're aware that your brother has something against you, if we had time, we flip over to Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus talks about this again, and there he talks about if you have something against your brother. In both cases, guess who's responsible to make it Right. It's you. (laughs) And so, if there's anything we can do, in as much as it depends upon us, if at all possible, we're to be at peace with one another. And if we're not, we need to repent. And according to Jesus, a lot depends on this. And so, rather than have some flowery poetic ending to my sermon, I'm just going to ask you this. What are you going to do about it? I want you just to go home with that thought in your head. What am I going to do about it? Because if it just gets into our head, but doesn't get lived out through our lives, it's worse for us than if we never heard it. It's the word of God. He wants to use it to bless you. He wants to use it to change your life. And if you're convicted that you're not walking in his word, what are you going to do about it? Let's stand together and we pray. God, we we're uncomfortable sometimes with your word, but we know that your word is true and that everything every thought that you express to us is right and that your heart toward us is pure And that you know what's best for us. And so, God, in the midst of a little bit of trepidation, we just come to you and say, okay, um, take our relationships. Those places where my heart is hurting, God, let me be a person who forgives. Let me be a person where I have been guilty, who seeks forgiveness, who seeks reconciliation, who turns from my sin and walks with you. God, you've shown us that our worship depends upon this, our, our relationship with you depends upon this, our, our witness to a lost world depends upon this, so help us not to take it lightly. Help us to be people who take some steps. And whatever you're calling each one of us to do, Lord, let us just trust you enough to do it, and we look forward to seeing you bring the peace that surpasses understanding, and we know you will, so we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.